Good morning. Craig asked me earlier if the last time I preached was a year ago, and indeed it was. So, as he said, I'm out of practice. Um, To compound that, I I chose for our text today, in Advent season as we lead up to Christmas, we're going to be looking in Leviticus, and that just doesn't sound right. It should be Luke 1 or 2, so... But we will see today, we will be looking at the Feast of Booths and how that is fulfilled in Jesus. Feast of Booths is otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. Um, So let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Almighty God, we thank you that all of the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. We thank you that though we are sinners You have graciously provided us a Savior who has redeemed us from sin and death and who has been, who has laid down his life for our sake. And we're grateful that his blood covers our sins so that we might draw near to you. We thank you that you are a present God. You are very near us. You fill our hearts with joy. You give us hope. We're grateful for your spirit. And we pray that as we open up your word today, that you would Open up our eyes and our ears to see and to hear how great of a God you are, and that you would change our hearts to follow you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. So we will be looking at Leviticus chapter 23 um, and other various passages around the Feast of Booths. Um, I do want to read reread what Caleb read earlier to sort of fix our eyes upon the text. We're not going to be expositing it. We're going to sort of look at a theological overview of the Feast of Booths and how it relates to Jesus. So Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. Again, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, on the 15th of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to Yahweh. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to Yahweh. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to Yahweh. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of Yahweh which you shall proclaim as a holy convocation to present offerings by fire to Yahweh, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and libations. Each day's matter On its own day, besides those of the Sabbaths that Yahweh, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of Yahweh for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So we will be considering the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and how it relates to the advent of Jesus. But before we 
dive too much into the text, I want to consider what it means, what Advent is, what this season before Christmas is that we commonly call Advent. The English word Advent comes from Latin and means to come to. It points to the scriptural truth that the Lord indeed comes to us. Notably, he comes to us at the birth of Jesus, where the good news of Emmanuel, meaning God with us, is born in the house of David to be lifted up as Israel's king and indeed the king of all kings. Well, God fulfilled his promises that he gave to his people throughout the Old Testament that he would one day come to his people to deliver them from their enemies once and for all. In Advent, though, we should not limit ourselves to merely considering Jesus in the manger or to imagine ourselves as if we were right before Jesus' birth. Rather, we must think about what it means that God visited his people in bodily form some 2,000 years ago and all that that implies. Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his actions, how his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Spirit are all aspects of Jesus coming to us, of his advent. We need to see the whole person and work of Jesus, not just the babe on Mary's lap. We must also remember that God comes to us and he visits us regularly, even now. He's poured forth his spirit into your life so that as an individual daily, you know that God is with you. Unless we forget, he visits us every Lord's Day, right now, where he lifts us up into his heavenly place. He invites us in, he forgives us, he teaches us, and he sits us at his, sits us at his table to give us Christ, to feed us on him. And it may be difficult for us to grasp at that reality, but when we gather as saints on Sunday mornings, God is indeed very present with us, even now. All of the blessings that Jesus secured for us some 2,000 years ago are now conveyed to us in the presence of God who is with us. So there's this aspect of Advent that is backwards looking and also the Advent that we see each and every week and each and every day that we know God is with us. We should come to expect that there may also be a future Advent. And we know that Jesus will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. There is this this time where he will come in bodily form at the end of the age, judging the enemies of the church and bringing the heavenly city, as we see at the end of Revelation, the heavenly city down on earth as a bride adorned for her husband. Along the way, we know that he will also make his presence known. He will also come to individuals. He will show himself to people who do not know him. And they will have their hearts turned to him by him as he visits them and pours his spirit upon them. For these we pray that God would turn their hearts indeed for them to bow down to the king of all kings. And for others we pray that God would judge them for they are the wicked and the oppressor. They are the ones who are crucifying Christians again. And we pray that God would come and judge them and remove them from the world. So as we consider this season of Advent and the Lord's coming to us, we look backwards to remember God's faithfulness to his promises, notably in Jesus' birth and and sending Jesus. But we also consider that he is gracious to us week by week by week, that he is faithful to us. 
especially on the Lord's day as he sits us at his heavenly table. And we also consider and need to remember during this season of Advent that the Lord will come again, that he will come to judge all people at the end of the age. So Advent really should be a time that we not just reflect upon Jesus, the baby, but we reflect on all of the times and ways that God comes to his people, past, present, and future. And this really is what is at the heart of looking at this festival, the the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And so we ask, what, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? What do we know about it? Well, it's mentioned in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, a couple of the minor prophets, and it's mentioned one time in the Gospel of John. Three times a year, Israel was called to celebrate festivals where the nation was to head into Jerusalem. At the beginning of the liturgical year in the spring, Israelite men were to appear before Yahweh to celebrate Passover, which Caleb talked about last week, and then a week-long feast of unleavened bread. From Passover, they were to count seven weeks and return before Yahweh for the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Weeks in the third month. The seventh month is filled with special days and begins with a special new moon called the Feast of Trumpets. Ten days later, on the tenth of the month, Israel would fast before Yahweh while the high priest performs his responsibilities on the Day of Atonement, purifying the sanctuary and cleansing the priesthood. From there, from the 15th of the month to the 22nd of the month, Israel would celebrate the Feast of Booths. The day after the feast, on the eighth day, Israel would have another holy convocation as they would also have had on the first day. This is to be a Sabbath rest for the people. They would do no work. And all of this is interesting for the Israelite. They would go through this year by year by year. And God had them do that. He instituted this for a purpose. To remind Israel about who he is. And who he was. And who he will be. It is to remind Israel Israel of what God has done and who he is. That they should give thanks to God for what he is doing with the nation along the way and that they should consider the faithfulness of this God and the future promises and blessings that God will bring about to them and through them to the world. So if we look at this passage and and looking at verse 34, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. Throughout this passage, you would notice some subtle hints as to what God wants Israel, and maybe some not-so-subtle hints, what God wants them to consider when celebrating this feast. And one of the most glaring ones is the timing of the feast and the reiteration of the number seven. It happens on the seventh month and lasts for seven days. And over and over, that's illustrated throughout this passage. It's God's call to Israel to remember the Sabbath, As you know, the Sabbath was introduced in day seven of the first creation week. Six days God created the world, and on the seventh day, he rested from his work, taking his throne over the heavens and earth and enjoying a rest. 
God's first words, let there be light, was followed by three days where light followed darkness day after day. The light did not come from the sun or from the stars, but seemed to emanate from God himself. However the light was happening, God was the one who was orchestrating it. He was in control of time. It was his time. It was his creation. On day four, though, he creates the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, up in the heavens as governors, governors over times, seasons, days, and years. God's people were to look to God and to look to the things that God has created to set over them to know when months should begin, when weeks begin, when festivals should happen. They looked to the sky to know when the start of the year was and when the seventh month was. We saw last week with Passover, it gives us another clue about who God is and what he wants Israel to know. This was the first of months to them. When they were redeemed from the land of Egypt and from Pharaoh, from the great enemy, they were given rest. And this was going to be the first of their new liturgical time. They were then to mark off six months, and on the seventh month, they were going to redo this. They were going to remember the Sabbath by celebrating the Feast of Booths. Being in the seventh month, Israel was to remember that God created their world in six days and then rested the seventh day. And this feast was a celebration of the rest that God has brought them into and will bring them into at the end of the age. As part of God's covenant to Israel upon Mount Sinai, God told them that the Sabbath was to be a day of rest to Israel precisely because God created the world in six days and then on the seventh day he rested. This was a gift to Israel from God. Israel had not, to that point, lived out the Sabbath. Remember, they were enslaved in bondage in Egypt, and Pharaoh and his slave masters worked Israel hard, too hard, work and work and work with no rest. But God delivered Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt and then brought them out to Mount Sinai, giving them the law, giving them now a rest changing Israel's time, redeeming Israel's time to now be God's time instead of Pharaoh's time. Israel would now have rest in their life because of God's gracious provisions. This Passover was a freedom from that enslavement. So with the Feast of Tabernacles, God is reminding Israel of the mighty acts going all the way back to when they were in bondage in Egypt. God set them free from the, in the Passover and set them and, and brought them into a rest. A rest filled with worship. A rest filled with a new time, the Creator's time, a new creation. More than that, though, Yahweh reminded Israel of the Exodus in another way. Israel was to celebrate this festival by living in booths for a whole week, as he says in verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So for seven days every year, Israel was to dwell in booths throughout that whole week in a giant festival and celebration 
to remember that God brought them out of the land of Egypt. And as they walked through and and trekked through the wilderness, they themselves lived in booths. God provided for them. It wasn't just that God brought them out of the land. He provided for them during the wilderness, during their wilderness trek. He was not just going to leave them to their own devices. The booths that Israel were to live in for seven days were booths, as it says, made of leafy branches. Nehemiah says, um, go to the hills and bring olive branches and oil tree branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So these were not tents. They were more uh, shelters or lean-tos. But what's interesting is we're not really told anywhere else that during the wilderness trek, this is actually how they lived. During the wilderness, you would imagine that there's not palm trees all the way around for enough for 600,000 men and women and children to make all these huts all throughout their 40 years wandering. So God must have some other meaning behind this. Maybe if we dig a little bit deeper, we can see that God is reminding Israel in multiple different ways of what he has done. And the answer seems to be found in the place where Israel left Egypt. So if you look at Exodus chapter 12, Let's see, in verse 37. The sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And in verse, in chapter 13. Uh, now I'm missing where, what verse it is. Where he brings them out at Succoth again. And that word Succoth is the word for booth. So even Jews today, when they talk about the Feast of Booths, they're talking about the Feast of Succoth. And so at this city, at this place, Succoth, that's where God first brought Israel out of this bondage and into the promised rest, or leading them into this promised rest. So, God seems to be recalling to Israel the moment that he brought them out into the land. He's reminding them of the Exodus again, the Exodus event. There it is, verse, chapter, tw- uh, verse, chapter 13, verse 20. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God's cloud, this covering, a booth as it were, was sheltering Israel. This is the same glory cloud that came down at the end of the book of Exodus and filled the tabernacle with all of his glory. This fire cloud. It's a reminder that God was the protector of Israel against the Egyptians that he was going to be the protection for defenseless Israel through the wilderness. Israel, when wandering through the wilderness, was shaded by God's glory cloud, we find in Psalm 104. He indeed is the great booth which they lived and find their shade from 
their enemies in the elements. So we can say that the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, is God's reminder to Israel or God's way to memorialize his provision of salvation from Egypt and to provide rest and provision of protection as he led his people by the cloud and the firelight. Israel was to remember and celebrate God's gracious salvation back in the Exodus. So that's the first thing, looking backward. The second thing that Yahweh wants Israel to consider during the Feast of Booths is not just the past, but the present. Right before Israel begins celebrating this great feast every seventh month, Israel must fast. It's the only fast day in Israel that they have to endure throughout the whole year compared to 80 feast days. This is the fast on the Day of Atonement. On the 10th day, Israel's high priest would enter into God's holy throne room to provide the blood of the lamb to cleanse the tabernacle and to cleanse the priesthood, resetting Israel, as it were. Before Israel could feast and enter into God's rest, and enthronement, the people were reminded that they were a sinful people, a stubborn people, a rebellious people that needs a substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. They need a covering, a covering of blood to atone for their sins, to bring God and man together again. For Israel to be the people of God, the royal priesthood, as we see in Exodus 19, a holy nation, they needed to have their sins cast out through the scapegoat and the blood of the atoning lamb sprinkled in the most holy place. They needed a reset of the entire nation, even down to the priests who offered the sacrifices on this day once every year. It was a reminder that before one could feast joyfully before the Lord, one must first come and be cleansed of sin. And that, even for Israel, was was something, because they recognized the distance that they had between God and themselves. For only one man, this one time a year, could come before God, clouded in, in darkness, entering into the Holy of Holies, not seeing God's full glory. The Feast of Booze, then, was this climax after the Day of Atonement. Days later, Israel was to gather and celebrate for seven days, remembering that their own sinfulness demanded a blood covering and that God has indeed provided one. Remembering that even through the Passover, a lamb need to be slaughtered and blood needs to cover them. It's this constant reminder that man is sinful, God is holy, and the only way we can enter into his presence is if we're cleansed of our sins. God's ongoing provision was also seen in the fact that this feast occurred in conjunction with the agricultural calendar. The Feast of Passover led to the Feast of First Fruits and culminated in the Feast of Booths, or, as it's also known, the Feast of Ingathering, which marked the end of the harvest cycle. So Israel celebrated by harvesting all of their grains and all of their vineyards, and then, or they harvested everything, and then celebrated. That's why you see this imagery of all of these leafy boughs being brought before and Israel dwelling in these lean-tos, celebrating the harvest that God has provided for them. Again, this is an Exodus theme. 
that God provides Israel with an abundant harvest throughout the wanderings in the wilderness. They had no food aside from the bread that God provided from heaven. They were to trust that God was faithful to to lead and to give good things to his people. Six days they were to gather that manna and on the sixth day they were to gather double for the seventh day because on the seventh day they were to rest. And so Israel was commanded to trust in Yahweh, trust in their God who has delivered them from the bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt. So Israel would be reminded during this time of not only God's faithfulness, but their own grumblings in the wilderness, how they complained about the food, how they grumbled that God wasn't giving them what they wanted, that they even wanted to go back into Egypt to get what, to be put under the bondage that they used to be. So God was reminding his people through bread, through wine, through the harvest of the fields, that Israel did not reap this. Israel did not sow this. It was God who is graciously providing this to them. They experienced the goodness of God in the presence of God because he is gracious. And again, we can say that the Feast of Booze or in gathering that God wants Israel to know and trust, it's a trust in God's ongoing provision for his people. That regardless of what circumstances may be around us at any given time, whether there's rain or lack of rain, God still provides. Whether there's food or lack of food, God will still provide. And God is reminding Israel year by year during this time that it is by his gracious hand that they are given anything. Another aspect, the third aspect of the Feast of Booze is found uniquely in Numbers chapter 29. If you would turn there with me. Here we read about the specific sacrifices that are to be made during this time. Beginning in verse 12. This gets a a bit repetitive, but follow with me. Then on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work and you shall observe a feast to the Lord for seven days. And you shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. 13 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old, which are without defect. And their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two tenths for each of the two rams and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs and one male goat for a sin offering besides the continual burnt offering, its grain offering, and its libation. Then on the second day, 12 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, and their grain offering and their libations for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. And one male goat for a sin offering besides the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their libations. Then on the third day, 11 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, and their grain offering and their libations for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs, by their number according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burn offering and its libation, and its grain offering and its libation. And it goes on. 
over and over and over again. Each day, this is what you should sacrifice. And it's the same except for the number of bulls. And it starts with 13 and it goes down to seven. And if you add these up, of course, I'm sure you're adding this up, there's 70 bulls. And 70 is a very important number in the scriptures. 70 is an important number to Israel up at this point because in Genesis chapter 10, we find that there are 70 nations. And so Israel, as it were, were were offering up sacrifices for themselves, but also offering up sacrifices for the nations. The priest goes in to make atonement for the people and the priests, and then several days later, Israel is offering up sacrifices for the nations. This is a reminder that Israel is to be a priest to the nations. There is the holy priest, then there's there's the high priest, then there's the other priest, and then there is the nation, and each one is a successive priest outwardly. And Israel is to reflect and go out into the world reflecting who God is, teaching the nations, being a light and being uh, a, a place, a house where the nations can come to and fall into and find God and trust in him. Israel was to trust that the promises given to Abraham were indeed going to flow through them to bless all of the families of the earth. Israel was the chosen family. The chosen son, as it were, where the blessing of God would flow back out into the world through the sin and chaos to bring about blessing. And it foreshadows the gospel, of course. We see this Jew and Gentile made into one new person in Jesus, the greater Israel who comes to bless the nations. So it combines, it combines this agricultural part as they reap this harvest with the, the 70 bulls in, uh, that they offer up for the nations And there's this grand picture that God is demonstrating to Israel that through them and through the Son that will one day come through them, there is going to be this wonderful harvest of the nations. It's not just going to be Israel alone. It's going to be all of the nations finding their rest with God, entering into God's throne based off of the blood of the Son. Well, there's one more theme that's brought out through these passages, and that is the theme of the eighth day. It's interesting that they they offer up sacrifices for seventh day, and then they have another holy convocation on the eighth day. And if we go back to the creation week, you have the the, the creation week, Adam was made on, on day sixth, and then there should be a Sabbath rest where God and man are dwelling together in in worship where man is worshiping God and entering into his rest. But Adam fails, he falls into sin. And so the first creation week was now marred. God gives us a picture of the eighth day to remind us and to give a promise to us that there will be a new week coming, a new creation. God will change time again, change creation again to bless his people. Israel looked at this and they know that this rest will come. 
that they will enter into, they will be set free from uh, the enslavement, just like they were with Pharaoh, but now this will be sin for all time, and they will be brought into a, a new rest. And it also, if we look to Deuteronomy chapter 16, this rest, this eighth day theme, fills Israel with joy. Looking at what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do should fill Israel with joy. Chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, looking at verse 13. Notice Notice the joy and the rejoicing here. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you and all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you shall be altogether joyful. This is a wonderful feast. This is the feast of feasts. Feasts. It's hard. This is joyful at all of what God has done, is doing, will do, looking at both to Israel and to all of the nations. And Israel is to celebrate with God. Israel has been cleansed and atoned for, and now God is bringing the nation to himself in a grand banquet. And they should rejoice. Rejoice at what God has done and what he will do. So let's now return to our discussion on Advent and tie this together. The truth that God indeed comes to visit his people I'd like to turn now to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Caleb read this for us. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among, among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John doesn't give us a an account of Jesus' birth. Rather, he gives us an account, a, a retelling of Genesis chapter one. He starts off by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. It reminds us, it points us back to what God did in the first creation. And now we have God again coming and in, in coming to us and entering into his creation to dwell with man in the person of Jesus. And Jesus tabernacles with us, and we tie this together. John wants us to see that in that tabernacling presence, that glory cloud that has now come down from heaven to earth, God is now establishing a new creation. He's changing time again. Through Jesus, John alludes to, well, he shows Jesus' march towards his ultimate glorification. It reminds us of the Exodus event, event where God tabernacled with his people and led them by cloud and by fire, led them throughout the wilderness and into the promised land. And Jesus here 
coming down and tabernacling with his people, goes throughout his life, goes throughout his journeys in his three-year ministry, and he's leading his people to glory, to Sabbath rest. And we find that Sabbath rest at the cross. John, there's many ways we can um, outline John, but one of the ways we can do it is to see where Jesus is uh, significantly um, in certain places at certain times. And in John chapter 7 is when we we see that he is uh, at the Feast of Booths. And so he's going into the the, uh, going into Jerusalem, well, he delays going into Jerusalem. But chapters 7, 8, and 9, you get this wonderful picture now, not at a tabernacle, but at the temple, where Israel would light giant candelabras, shining the light on the temple, and they would pour water from the pool of Siloam, and they would dump out water. And it's this picture that God is that glory light that leads Israel, and that will be the light to the world. And this water that's going to be you know, purifying out, that's going to flow through the temple and through God's people to be a blessing to the world. Jesus comes in and he says, I am the light of the world. He says, he is going to be the one. If anybody is thirsty, come to him and get a drink. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And we get to a controversy, a Sabbath controversy, no doubt, where Jesus is healing and providing new life on the Sabbath. And then we get to John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a blind man and he recreates him. He spits in, in the dirt and puts it on his eyes. It's a picture of God reaching down and grabbing the dirt and breathing life into Adam. Now Jesus is bringing about a new creation and remaking mankind in the image of himself. And so Jesus, throughout his ministry, is, is fulfilling the ideas and the themes that the Feast of Booths present, that God is faithful, that he delivers, that he is the light and the glory that leads his people, and that he is bringing his people into a new creation rest. The glory ultimately is revealed at the cross, though, preeminently at the cross, because it was at the cross where the past promises of God were now coming to fulfillment. It was at the cross where we finally find the true atoning blood of the Lamb. It was at the cross where God delivered his people out from an even greater enemy than Egypt. Israel during this time, should have looked to the cross and seen their God, seen the fulfillment of all of the feasts, fulfillment of all of the promises, to see that Jesus is indeed God's presence with them. But instead, they lifted him up on the cross where Jesus was enthroned to give us rest. God's glory was further revealed on the eighth day because it was the eighth day where we find that the Sabbath had been fulfilled and changed. It was at the empty tomb where Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection. Just as he promised, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it again, Jesus was indeed the temple. 
the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the tabernacling presence amongst his people. And so Jesus, this new and greater tabernacle, then breathes the spirit onto his disciples and ultimately we find in Acts, pours out the spirit upon the church where the church, where individuals are now the temple of God, the tabernacling presence on earth as it is in heaven. God's glory cloud has now filled men. And we become that royal priesthood. The Spirit is poured out upon the church, and the church, boosted by the Spirit, expands in the days of Acts outward from Jerusalem, from Israel, outward to the nations, which fulfills the promise alluded to in the Feast of Booze, that all of the nations would be brought to God through Israel. And Jesus, fulfilling Israel, is the new Israel in whom there is now neither Jew nor Greek, but it is one man, one Christian in him. And then we get to think about our commissioning at the end of Matthew, where Jesus commands us to go out into all of the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Jesus bringing about people to himself by sending his glory through people out into the world. So we return to discussion on Advent and how this ties together with the Feast of Booze. This time of year we remember with joy that Jesus came to us when he was born and all that his life, death, and resurrection affords. But we need to remember that he comes to us each and every Lord's Day in a special way. For like Israel, we're given a feast, a joyful celebration of what he has done for us, and what he is doing for us, and what he promises he will do for us in the future. As we gather around the table each week, to eat with the king, we eat the body and the blood of our Lord and the bread and wine. And in a very real way, we are present with him. We sit at the table having been washed in his blood, the blood of the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We sit at the table and we remember what he has done 2,000 years ago, how he was born to die that he was brought into this world by God's grace to take on our flesh so that we can behold the majesty and beauty and holiness of our God. For God to come to us so that we might draw near to him. It's also at the table where we can thank God for what he's doing in our lives now. We thank him that he has provided us this bread and this wine. We thank him that he is leading us by his spirit that he's poured out to us. We thank thank him that he convicts us of sin and he grows us in holiness. We thank him that he has given us his word to consecrate us and to cut us up and to build us back together again, stronger, more faithful, more conformed to the image of his son. So we remember and we are thankful for what he does now. But it's also a table where we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
We look to the future. We do this week by week by week with an eye towards the future. We know Jesus will come again one day. We know he has come before. And he comes each and every week. But one day in bodily form, he will come back and he will bring the new Jerusalem, the city from heaven down upon earth so that we will have no more tear shed. We will have a new garden creation where his light will fill the whole world, where we can behold the glory of our God through Jesus. We look forward to that. And Jesus commands us to eat, proclaim it until he comes again. So as we sit here receiving forgiveness, hearing from God's word, rejoicing at the mighty works he's done for us, marveling at the great Savior we've been blessed with. As we sit here, we should long for others to experience that same joy. We would long for others to see Jesus the way we see him, for us to behold the glory and to share the glory of God to others. This is what the Festival of Tabernacles is all about enjoying God's presence, and then sharing that joy to others. We want his kingdom to be seen by everybody. We want the rejoicing that happens around this table to be so compelling that people flock to Christ. We want the the joy around this table, especially around this time of year, to fill up with such light in our faces that the light of Christ illumines the world. We want this table to be filled with such love that those outside of Christ will see the love and the compassion that our Father has on us and that flows through us where it's so compelling that they want to come into those doors and sit at this table with a loving Father too. And so it's with feasting it's with rejoicing. It's, it's remembering that God indeed does come to us in the person of Jesus and the baby, but also more than that, week by week, and he will also come again. And that fills our hearts with joy. And we want that joy to overflow to the nations because we want the prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what do we do? We feast, we rejoice. We proclaim his death until the Lord comes again. Please stand with me. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and merciful God, we are so grateful that you take sinners and you wash us with the blood of Jesus. We're grateful that, that you have sent your son to take on our flesh and to show us your glory preeminently at the cross, where he was torn for our sake, where he bore our transgressions on himself at the cross. We're grateful, Lord, that he did that as a king, laying down his life for his people. We're grateful, too, that he is resurrected again, that he was vindicated that he is the God-man, he is the king of all kings, and he has taken his throne at your right hand, Father. 
We're grateful, too, that you've poured out your Holy Spirit. Despite Jesus being in heaven, one of us, human, at your right hand, we're grateful that you are now here with us in the person of your Spirit, living in each one of us and living in the church, making us a light to the nations. And so we pray, Father, that you would fill us with the glory of the almighty triune God through the person of Jesus by your spirit. That you would fill us up with that so that we can go out into the world and we can shine the light of Christ to the nations. Share the love of Christ to all. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have given us a feast, a joyful feast, where we have had our sins forgiven We've been brought near to you to hear your word and now we can sit at a table with the king of all kings. And we're grateful for this and we rejoice in it. We're grateful that it is the fulfillment of all of the feasts in the Old Testament. And we're also grateful that it's a foreshadowing of the great and grand feast that will be with you at the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb where one day we will dwell with you forever and ever. And we look forward to that day, Father. We thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness to us, for opening up our eyes to see you, and we pray that you would continue to show us your goodness and that we would trust you. We thank you for what you have done, for what you are doing, and for the promises ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.